You know, I was totally fine breaking into Dan's house, but Terry freaking booby traps his front fucking door now. I guess he figured out that I was in here, but... But hopefully I uh, managed to cough on enough things that he's able to just, just kind of see the spittle splatter and understand that it was Dan. I'm trying to be really subtle. Terry's a crafty one. Anyway, you know, with fiends like these, who needs enemas? I'd better hurry up and get this done before he gets back. I don't know how long he's going to be out for. How long do people repeatedly lift heavy things while surrounded by other beautiful people in neon clothing? Or whatever the fuck it is that Terry does. Anyway, um, let's move on to the fiends. The final category. What's interesting about these guys are that they're not devils, they're not demons, they're not yugoloths. This seems to be the only real... Um, faction that that goes unnamed in all of the monster manual like when you go when you come up with dragons you have very specific categories you've got um chromatic dragons and you've got metallic dragons in the past there have been gem dragons you don't get any dragons that are a definitive honest to god dragon that doesn't fit into one of these categories uh, the same thing can be said for um for angels you don't get anything like a cherub that's angel-ish, but not categorized as an angel. So it's very strange that we've run into something uh, like this. There are no elementals that don't get an elemental thing attached to them. So um, apparently, though, we do get that with fiends, where there's just so damn many of them, and I guess they couldn't decide whether they were devils or demons or, uh, or yugoloths. So... They came up with just a handful of others. So let's start to run through them really quickly. Um, the first and foremost um, is the uh, ever uh, difficult to pronounce Varjui. Varguil. Uh, I like to call it a Varjui because it just has that French feel to it. These are tiny CR1 creatures. They're chaotic as all hell. You can find them in Volo's Guide to Monsters. They come howling from the abyss with bodies that resemble human heads, and they have bat wings where their ears should be. These shrieking little bastards are a menace, and a flock of these things is incredibly deadly. They are like the intellect devourers and some of the other low-level monsters. Uh, specters are another one. These things can, if you're not managing properly, can definitely lead to a death spiral. A death spiral, of course, is when one player dies and another one um, uh, isn't able to resurrect them. So the more people that are knocked out of the uh, the action economy, the more difficult it becomes for the remaining players that are up standing. And you end up spiraling out, losing your whole party. Normally a TPK starts when the first person goes down. It's not a giant big fireball attack that wipes out three people. Most TPKs start with one weird effect that nobody's expecting that doesn't really have a couple of good saves and that's what these varjui do i absolutely love saying this name um they do have a minor bite attack but they're far more dangerous than that so let me get into it um first of all many mi uh, minor demons fear them uh, when they're in great numbers but they rarely eat flesh they can't get it because they're so weak, they result in devouring vermin and licking up slime. They often hitchhike on the backs of other demons that are summoned so that they can get into the prime material plane, and they're always desperate to get out of the lower planes and to get to real meat. It also has a shriek attack that both frightens and stuns nearby enemies. So you see, here's where we're starting with the insanity. CR1. Most frighten effects, if saved against can only be effective once per day. This shriek can be effective an hour later. So if you uh, end up getting frightened by, let's say, a, a minor undead creature with a frightened effect, you can save at the end of every round, and then you're good against that for the next 24 hours. 
this is not true for these guys. These shrieks um, can come back and haunt your soul just an hour later. So you can have these guys swoop down and attack, and if the players don't get stunned, they can just fly away. If a creature is incapacitated by the shriek, the Varjui will land on it and, you ready for this, kiss it. The creature needs to make a charisma save or become cursed. But here's the thing, the curse has no effect in sunlight, so the players may not even know that they've been cursed. In darkness or shadow, though, for every hour that goes by, the player or the character's uh, charisma reduces by one every hour. So you think overnight, if there's 10 hours a night, you, your charisma drops by 10. And it slowly transforms whoever the cursed creature is, transforms their head into having larger ears that slowly resemble bat wings, little tentacles or horns or other fiendish qualities. They're slowly becoming the Varjui. If their charisma gets to 12, the target's ears flap and its head tears from its body with an eruption of blood, killing the creature immediately, and their head becomes a new Varjui. It takes a remove curse or a greater restoration spell to undo this, and these things are available at CR1. You don't have access to remove curse or greater restoration, and by the time that you figure out that you need it, you're probably in the middle of the night. You need sunlight or daylight spell to hold this back. That is deadly, and I love these little guys. If you were to have, if you have a party who has too many NPCs, drop a swarm of these guys on them and watch in horror as the people that get kissed, that get stunned and kissed, uh, slowly transform throughout the night and then erupt in blood and gore and viscera only to make more of these things to attack again. I can really picture these things leveling a small village in about three days. Next on the list is a CR3 uh, Hellhound. This is lawful um, evil creature, and it's from the Monster Manual. These are medium-sized dogs, so I mean they're bigger than your average dog. Think, um, think like a Great Dane almost, um, but a little bit beefier. Um, and you can tell that they're dogs because they get pack tactics, and it's right in the name, Hellhound. They're smart, and they can understand Infernal, and they're pure evil. It, these guys can only be trained by ruthless killers, though. So, sorry, warlocks. I mean, unless you are a ruthless killer, you can't get one of these things as a familiar. They burn with a deep hunger, and their prey uh, fuels the hellfire that burns inside them. So, they're actually literally burning on the insides. When a hellhound dies... Uh, this internal fire burns its remains to ash. So there's no way to actually have a hellhound pelt. It also has a fire breath that recharges on a 5 or a 6 that does pretty good damage for a CR3 creature. And remember, because they hunt in packs, they're still valid as enemies up until probably low tier 3 encounters. And with the CR3, I could throw 6 or 7 of these guys at a at a level level 4, or uh, sorry, level 14 party. I think that's uh, that's completely viable. Next on the list is a nightmare. It's also CR3. This is a large creature because, well, it's a horse. Well, they appear as pitch black horses with fiery manes and tails, and they even grant fire resistance to anyone riding them. These guys are wreathed in 10 feet of bright light and 20 feet of dim light beyond that. So we're talking about big fiery black horses here. Which you may think is, oh, you know, pretty cool. We've got demon horses, but it's a little darker than that. They can only be created by torturing a pegasus, removing its wings, and imbuing it with dark magic. So these are twisted pegasi. A nightmare can be a steed, and it's more intelligent than average horses, understanding common, abyssal, and infernal. But in order for you to bond with it, you need to offer it a worthy sacrifice for it to eat before it's going to ally with you. Also, my favorite thing about it is it can take up to three willing creatures with it to the ethereal plane. It doesn't have any strong offensive capabilities, but I love that it can take up to three willing creatures to the ethereal plane. You'll notice it doesn't say bring them back from the ethereal plane. 
and most parties have more than three willing creatures. You want to split a party permanently? This is going to do it. Next on the list is the Barghest. This thing, uh, what a bizarre piece of lore. It's CR4, it's a large creature, usually. Uh, this was another one from uh, Volo's Guide to Monsters, but let me go through it. It's got some fun lore. Long ago, Maglubiot, the leader of the Goblinoid Pantheon, made a deal with the General of Gehenna, but Maglubiot didn't keep up his end of the bargain. And as a result, the General of Gehenna created the soul-devouring Bargest to hunt down Goblinoid souls. The Bargest is born to Goblinoid parents and looks like a regular Goblin most of the time. It eventually learns to shape change into its large quadrupedal form, which looks like it has the body of a direwolf dire wolf with black hair and has the face of a, I don't know, a half goblin, half bat. Uh, it's got kind of a goblinoid face without hair on it and, you know, very large fangs. It's imprinted by the General of Gehenna himself with its mission the moment that it comes into, into existence. The mission is very simple. Kill 17 goblinoids and devour their bodies, which also devours their souls and keeps them from joining Maglubiot in the afterlife. The more powerful the goblinoid souls they consume, the better rank the Barghest will get when they return home. They often hide their true nature if possible, but if goblins find out that there's one in their midst, they fall over each other to show that they're so pitiful that they aren't worth devouring. And they will often point them in the direction of the nearest bugbear or hobgoblin uh, group that's that's in their goblinoid horde. A Barghest can and will devour any humanoid soul, but its work isn't done until it's devoured 17 goblinoid souls. The more powerful, the better. If a Barghest is consumed by fire larger than its body, though, it's sucked back to Gehenna, where it's enslaved or executed by a Yugoloth for its failure. Uh, this is an interesting thing because there doesn't seem to be any reason for this. Uh, as a side note, instantaneous bursts of fire, like uh, breath weapons or fireballs and stuff, don't trigger this effect. You have to get it into a freaking bonfire. In order to devour a soul, the victim needs to be killed by the Barghest within the last 10 minutes. The feeding then takes one minute, and the soul is slowly digested over the next 24 hours. So you still have access to the ability um, to resurrect a fallen party member, and it's unlikely that a Barghest is going to be able to have the full minute to devour a party member. But beloved NPCs are totally on the menu. After the 24 hours, um, the soul can't be saved or resurrected. Just hard stop. That's in the lore. If the Barghest is slain before the 24 hours expires, the soul is released. Any attempts to revive a soul that is currently trapped within a Barghest only have 50% chance of working. Barghest can also polymorph into a goblin as an action. Their stats remain the same except for size and speed. And their speed, by the way, is 60 feet in canine form. These things are hunting down goblins easily and quickly. But they're also, if you run into a goblin that has a ridiculous amount of strength but doesn't look any different, chances are you're dealing with a Barghest. They're strangely good spellcasters considering their level. They're able to cast Charm Person, Dimension Door, Suggestion, and even Levitate, among others. And of course, it's stacked up to be both devious and a good hunter with its other abilities that are kind of passive. Uh, it appears in Tales of the Yawning Portal as well, in the module Death in Thay, and strangely, uniquely, these Barghests can be reasoned with and may even become sort of an ally to adventuring parties, but I don't want to spoil any more about the, the module, so you'll have to check that one out yourself. I really like these guys because they're strange lore, like the Nilbog that, that operate inside goblin encampments. I can't imagine having these things be a major factor in, in any campaign, except to add more random to, to random that is the goblin horde. So, are, are D&D, Creators of Wizards of the Coast thinking that between Nilbogs and and Barghests, and and it's it's like this for for the Durgloths as well the um, the Drow uh, Glabrezu hybrids 
and uh, and the Tanarooks for the orcs. Like, are we they expecting us to see a whole lot of these these drow societies and the inner workings of goblinoid societies or or orc encampments? Like, it, it, these seem very specific. They're neat. They're fun flavor, but they're they're kind of ridiculous uh, because they're so circumstantial. Although now that I say that, I do like the idea of the heroes knowing that the Barghest is plaguing a village. They're so low level that they know they can't kill the Barghest. So they just go capture 17 goblins and, and offer them up as sacrifice to get rid of this monster. That's pretty horrifying. I'm into that. Man, this is how you start to play a... a dubious morality campaign anyway next on the list is another one that i'm like why did this end up on the fiend list i understand that it is a fiend but we spent so much time in the demons episode at the end talking about gnolls that why is there a gnoll fang of yinagu sitting here at cr4 in in the unlabeled category Gnolls often perform demonic rituals, which we know, and sometimes the demon lord Yenagu rewards them, which we know, but this time it rewards them by uh, allowing them to be possessed by a demon. I can't imagine what demon... Well, maybe the... Maybe the Shusuva? I mean, that makes a certain amount of sense, but wouldn't they, would, wouldn't they rather have a Shusuva show up because it's a CR8 killing machine? Anyway, this knoll is considered blessed by the rest of the group. If this new knoll, which is called the Fang of Yianagu, makes a kill, and a hyena eats the slain victim, the hyena undergoes a brutal transformation that results in it becoming a fully grown adult knoll. So this guy seems to be infecting corpses with the seeds of... of adult gnolls that if a hyena eats the heat the seed the hyena explodes and becomes a new gnoll what's interesting is that this mimics the ritual that yinagu himself used to create the first gnolls in the actual lore around yinagu so that's pretty fun um and i do like that what's interesting is that the uh this is found in the monster manual and we don't really get a good look at yinagu himself until more kind of tome of foes the other thing to keep in mind is that if there are enough hyenas around, there could be a sudden and terrifying increase in the knoll population of an area, and really the only way to stop that is to find the fang of Yinagu and kill it. It still seems strange to me, though, that it's not a demon. It's possessed by a demon, um, and you'd think that they would just... And it's still considered a fiend, so why is it not considered a demon? I may just fake that and fudge it for my own homebrew reasons as for the mechanics it has increased stats beyond a knoll which is not surprising knolls are cr half and this is cr4 uh, they get some saving throw bonuses and a multi-attack now the bite attack causes additional poison damage which makes a certain amount of sense and uh, it still gets the rampage feature that knolls get and the claw attack that it gets is decently powerful, and it replaces the spear and shortbow. These guys are running in for melee combat, and they're killing with their bare hands. And that's that's a lot of fun. The next up on the list is one of my favorites, and possibly one of the most misunderstood fiends, even though it is probably one of the most famous. And I'm talking about the Incubus. The Incubus... Was good. He's going to enter the scene originally as a phantasmal, ethereal being that corrupts a creature's dreams, seducing them with taboos and forbidden appetites. We're already getting dark. It doesn't come out and say sexual deviance, but that's where we're really heading here, I feel like. The victim slowly succumbs to these ideals, and the incubus slides into the mortal realm in the form of an incredibly attractive man to directly offer these debaucheries to the target. The incubus seduces or befriends the victim, stealing the soul of the victim by corrupting them completely. Legends say that you need to do it with a betrayal of thoughts, a betrayal of words, and a betrayal of deeds, and these are called the three betrayals. Once corrupted, the victim is then murdered, and its soul is dragged down to the lower planes. And while it can charm by using magic, forcing a creature to act against its will doesn't actually count toward corrupting its soul. 
So there's a couple of things to unpack here. First and foremost, uh, it does say seduces or befriends the victim, which means this can just be something as simple as getting them to fall into their gambling addiction or getting them to use drugs. There has to be some sort of corruption. The other thing is the three betrayals. Thoughts, do you think something that is evil? Words, do you say something that is evil? And deeds, do you do something that is evil? And that's really all that's necessary. And let me tell you, murder hobos, you guys are already doing all three of those things by the time that you're done the first session. So it's not going to take much for an incubus to go in there and and lay waste to even a decently leveled party member. I would say I would lean into the idea of the betrayal. If your party's chaotic or they swing in the direction of murder hobo, I would say that it would be a betrayal of the party as opposed to betrayal of the concept of good. But uh, I really do like that the incubus themselves doesn't necessarily have to be sexual. It leans in that direction. It really hints it. But it can just be, look, you ever have that person that you, you look at your friend and go, man, I wish you weren't friends with that guy because he's a bad influence? That's what an incubus is. I picture them popping up as some sort of lecherous little halfling that's trying to, to get your guys to go out and live the, the nightlife, right? Uh, the kiss of an incubus is an attack, and it actually fills its victims with emptiness and pain reminiscent of the incubus's desperation to corrupt a soul, or the look in Dan's eyes whenever Terry and I unnecessarily explain a joke to him. What's interesting is that they say kiss, but I, I like to think of it, it could be anything, it could be a stroke of a cheek, or, you know, rubbing somebody's back. It's traditionally a kiss just because it's traditionally a sexualized thing or an intimate thing. But I think that there should be a specific action that they do um, that fills the victim with this, this emptiness and pain. They have a powerful telepathic bond with their victim, and they don't even need to be on the same plane of existence to communicate with them through this telepathy. So, you know, banishment won't help. Uh, these guys can shape changes in action, keeping all of their stats except speed and its ability to fly uh, because they have big-ass freaking bat wings and, uh, and their size if it becomes a small creature. If an incubus dies, it reverts back to its original form and then just kind of stays dead there. It doesn't really talk about these guys moving back into the abyss or into the nine hells. Uh, this is another one of these fiends that it seems very, very likely that they're not going to be able to um, just get spawned by the lower planes or there's no way to promote someone up into them. So they actually have, strangely enough, um, some crazy reproduction rules to them as well. Um, but before we get to that, its charm is decently powerful for its level. It does have the ability to charm, but it can only charm one person at a time. Its draining kiss attack only works on charmed or willing creatures. So you can't just do it to anybody. But it does up to 3d10 plus 5 necrotic damage. This damage also applies to the target's max hit points until they finish a long rest. If it reduces the max hit points to zero, the creature dies. Also, an incubus can enter the ethereal plane from the material plane as an action. So, this thing is going to be an ambusher, it's going to be able to retreat, and remember, it can shape change into any humanoid creature that's uh, medium or small. So, it may show up as someone else again later, if you don't get to it. Now, everything that I've said so far also applies to a succubus. And... Some of you, I can hear you unbuckling your freaking pants right now because, yeah, we're talking about a succubus. But here's the thing. Succubus is, the succubi, rather, sorry, have a pretty nasty reputation. And you guys need to know that these are not sexy, horny fuck demons that they have been in general pop culture. A succubus, what's interesting is that a succubus can become an incubus. And an incubus can become a succubus because they can actually change their shape. Now, they have a preference to gender, but they will change depending on their needs. 
So it's the same creature that is changing its gender and its sex, um, specifically its sex. Um, and it can represent itself as any gender that it wants to. And that can be a little bit frightening because you can be seduced by the, by the, uh, little halfling, the lecherous little halfling that's trying to get you to do your gambling. And then, you know, it escapes. It fucks off to the ethereal plane when it gets found out. And then it appears seven sessions later as a beautiful woman. These guys are littered all over the lower planes. So there's tons of them as well. And they look beautiful and seductive. And they're, they're like humans with large black bat wings and uh, they can actually fly with them. They often serve powerful devils and demons, night hags, rakshasas, and yugoloths. Um, as Modius uses them to corrupt mortals, and Grazd keeps them as advisors and consorts. So that's both a archdevil and a demon lord right there. So they're all over the place, and they can. It says right in the lore they can procreate with each other. Or, rarely, with a mortal, which produces a cambion. And we're going to get into that in a second. But uh, if they produce with, or if they reproduce with a mortal um, and produce a cambion, that offers some great lore as to why they would be there besides just dragging down someone into the, into the lower planes. And I can picture one of these guys seducing an NPC, um... An incubus shows up, starts to corrupt the NPC or the player even, and then stopping, disappearing for whatever reason, coming back as a succubus and deciding to get pregnant and have a cambion. Or maybe they impregnate an NPC and a cambion is born. And then they drag that person down to hell, leaving the cambion up in the prime material plane. There are all sorts of weird, funky aspects to what you can do with an incubus or a succubus. I would be very careful about just injecting this into your campaign without... I mean, I wouldn't spoil it for the party, but I would make sure that you've got the right people. And this is kind of what your session zero conversation is for. Because we are talking... They don't have to be sexy, horny, fuck demons. But they often are. And people will use them that way. But remember, it's really all about seducing or befriending the three betrayals and dragging their soul to hell. Now, let's talk about Cambians for a minute. These guys are CR5, so even more powerful than the Incubi Succubi. So, they can be any alignment, um, as long as it's on the evil scale. So, lawful, neutral, or chaotic. Cambians are offspring of any humanoid and fiend. So you can get these things if a, oh, a pit fiend has a magical love child with an elf. Not that I picture that happening. But any time that there's a reproduction, uh, tieflings take note because you can point to Cambians to be like, hey, you know what? Those are the bad guys, not us. Um, Cambians, uh, they have aspects of both of the creatures uh, that uh, from their parentage, but they take the horns, the leathery wings and tails of their fiendish parentage, right? So they swing evil, even as youths. They often incite discourse, and uh, they dominate lesser devils. So these things are beings of pure will, and they're just going to get up to shit right away. If a Cambian serves a devil, it does so with admiration and and dread, expecting eventual prominence within the ranks. They are diabolic soldiers, envoys, and attendants. In the Abyss, however, they only have as much power over demons as they're able to portray and, and put on display for the other demons. So, Cambians are... Um, they can be spawned by devils, demons, I guess even Yugoloths. It does say any fiend, although I don't really see a Metzaloth or an oinoloth really getting into a, some sexy times with a with a dwarf. Uh, Grast loves procreating with humanoids, though. Um, and he's got many, many, many children as a result. Uh, he specifically goes after the ones that have made fiendish packs. So these are you, warlocks. Look out. And he has sired so many cambions that he's lost track. 
His offspring have charcoal black skin, cloven hooves, six-fingered hands, and unearthly beauty. Which, that last thing doesn't feel quite right. I guess facial beauty, or like six-pack abs, maybe? Maybe they just got like that, that ass that just won't quit? Anyway, these creatures have strong saves for their CR of five. Um, they've got some basic spell casting, but they don't have any really offensive spells. Although they do have an, an attack called Fire Ray that does 3d6 damage they can use as an action. It uh, adds its charisma to its AC, which is kind of unique. And it uses charisma as its spellcasting ability. And it can cast uh, Charm. And it can charm creatures for up to a day, depending on whether or not they make their save uh, when they're damaged or if they're commanded to be suicidal. This is really interesting. So... If they're charmed, they're charmed for up to a day. But they can be pulled out of that if they um, if they take damage and they uh, succeed on the save again. They have the opportunity to save if they get hurt or if they're commanded to be suicidal. You'll notice that it says specifically suicidal and not uh, self-harming. So these guys could very much walk into... Uh, walk into a scenario where they know they're going to get hurt, but they know they won't die, or at least they think they won't. Then they'll take the damage, and they'll get to make the save. But but you can put them, you can put the victims of the Cambion in real peril, as long as the victims don't believe that peril is, is too deadly. Additionally, I mean, the Cambion's got a pretty good spear attack, but they seem to be more about flavor. And this is really what we're getting with all of these fiends, is that I think it's the flavor themselves um, of their lore that keeps them from being devils or demons. I don't see them... I don't see a Cambion being raised up in the devilish army or um, working with a with a Baylor demon, for example. They're going to try to be... Um, as involved as possible in both sides of the blood war and you, and you can see them on both sides and even in the neutral parties but i think that you're not going to see a whole lot of them and they're going to stand probably outside of the, the general ranks next on the list is one of my favorites this is the night hag this is a cr5 this is neutral evil right out of the monster manual this is the only hag that is actually a fiend and not of fey origin hags are a lot of fun let me just start by saying everybody should go look into hags. They're ridiculous, and they are just going to make any campaign so much better. Um, but let's get into the night hag. These bitches, let me tell you. They're sneaky and sly. They're, they're grotesque. They have blue skin, long fingernails, like slender-looking like ram horns that sweep back. Uh, they love to subvert and corrupt and have limited spellcasting abilities. Although, being able to spell uh, spam Magic Missile is pretty useful. I, I do enjoy the fact that they just have Magic Missile. Um, their skills point to deception and lies, and they've got some good resistances, including Magic Resistance. So here's the thing about them. They were once a part of the Feywild, but their foulness had them exiled to Hades. Not the others. All the other hags, which are foul and nasty and gross, got to stay in the Feywild. These ones are so bad, they got exiled to a freaking lower plane where they degenerated into fiends. I'm not even sure how that works. I guess they just got corrupted by the lower plane. And they've spread now across the lower planes. They're natural shape changers, and they can become small or female or medium females, um, but uh, they have to be humanoids, and their stats remain the same whenever they shape change. Um... If a night hag dies, she will revert to her true self. Uh, her signature move is to become ethereal, straddle a sleeping mortal, which, awesome, and infect its dreams with nightmarish visions. If these nightmares persist for an hour, then the target gains no benefit from the rest, and its hit point maximum decreases by 1d10. I really wish there was a mechanic for waking people up in 5th ed, because this seems to just be crazily arbitrary. If the nightmares persist for an hour, 
I guess you're just going to infect probably seven out of eight hours of a long rest if you're sleeping the whole time. This is a good opportunity to think about how night hags can really, really fuck over a party suffering from exhaustion, right? Because you don't get benefit from the rest and your hit points decrease. Additionally, the people uh, suffering from the nightmares can only think about fear and doubt, and if the victim acts in an evil way as a result of this, and then dies from this nightly corruption of having its maximum hit points reduced, then their soul becomes trapped in the soul bag that the night hag has, uh, and the night hag transports the soul down to Hades. First of all, soul bag? Great name for a band. I'm into it. Now, this also happens to evil creatures. It's not just about corruption. If they do this to an evil creature as well, who inherently acts in an evil manner, then it's going to trap their soul as well. Um, the, what's interesting is that the hit point maximum can only be restored with greater restoration or similar magic. So you need to, I mean, again, we've got a CR5 creature who is going to force the party to seek out high-level healers. That they don't have access to any of these um, high-level healing spells at such a low level. Night Hags um, have two items of note. They have the Heartstone, which will allow a Night Hag to turn ethereal while she possesses it. It also, interestingly enough, cures any disease. So I would be really hesitant to let your players get their hands on that. The other one is the soul bag, which is made from flesh and can only hold one soul at a time, but it automatically catches a soul that succumbs to the hags and nightmares. There are rules for crafting each of these items in the monster manual, so you can go look that up. And there's also rules for night hag covens as well. I highly recommend that everybody look into to hags. They're just wicked amounts of fun. Next on the list is the only entry today from Mordenkind's Tome of Foes. Um, this is uh, the Howler, CR8, and it's a large, chaotic, evil creature. Uh, howlers are hairless quadrupeds from the realm of Pandemonium, with long tails, a ridge of spines down its back, and a piggish face that resembles a pig skull. Under their lower jaws are large, blood-red, inflatable sacks that give them their terrible, mind-breaking howl. That's, that's not me using hyperbole. It's actually called mind-breaking howl. These creatures can be abused and bullied into accepting a master as the leader of their pack, uh, and they can end up in a crude form of domestication, but it's going to be based on violence, and I expect that they would turn on their master the moment that the master um, fails or becomes weakened in some way. The howl that they have that gives them their name can be heard at quite a distance, but when close, it takes the form of a 60-foot cone attack that makes creatures who are not deaf frightened. And while frightened, these creatures can only move at half speed and they're incapacitated until the end of the Howler's next turn. So, it is a pretty powerful um, auditory weapon, which again is unique, and I like this. Mordenkind has really fleshed out the other sides to D&D lore beyond just Slashing, bludgeoning, piercing, and fire. Howlers, though, are a bit of a glass cannon. Uh, they've got weak defensive numbers, but they got a pretty decent bite that does 2d6 plus 3 piercing and ignores damage resistances, so, you know, fuck you barbarians. If the target is frightened, the bite does an additional 4d10 psychic damage. So, that sucks. And these things are supposed to move in packs, right? which you can tell from the lore and the fact that they have pack tactics, but they're freaking CR8. If you drop a pack of these things down, they're going to tear through a tier 3 party. I have real trouble imagining a pack of CR8 creatures unless they're doing a raid on some village or a group of refugees that are on some sort of pilgrimage, maybe. Um, you need to start giving NPCs in here to, to distract the Howlers, and maybe make them half as effective against the party. Uh, a pack of these things can potentially wipe out even low tier 4 parties. So, as much as I like them and they've got some fun lore, they're pretty freaking deadly. And I would be really 
really hesitant to have more than about two of these on the battlefield at any time. Next on the list, which is a load of fun, is the Devourer. Uh, these are CR-13s. That was a bit of a jump, right? Uh, they're chaotic evil, and they're large creatures. These guys are out of Volos. Um, they're created by Orcus, but they're not classified as demons. Again, I don't understand why not. I think it has to do with the fact that they straddle the line between uh, Fiend and Undead. But again, they're just Fiends. They're raised up uh, from lesser demons that Orcus promotes, and these Eight-foot-tall, desiccated husks appear as large, mummy-like humanoids with blown-open, empty rib cages. So you can still see the ribs, but there's nothing behind them. This, this empty chamber. With decent stats, considering its, its challenge rating, this ever-hungry creature wanders the abyss, ethereal plane, and astral plane, although it occasionally enters the material plane. It doesn't require air, food, drink, or sleep, much like most undead, which tracks because, you know, Orcus makes them. Um, it has a pretty good claw attack, but its power is in its two special attacks. Uh, we'll, we'll deal with the second one first, though. The second one is listed in, uh, in Volos first. The Soul Rend recharges on a six. Soul Rend. I like that. It creates a vortex of life-draining energy in a moderate radius that centers on the Devourer, right? So, um, I think about just like swirling, I guess, necrotic darkness, maybe shadows swirling around the Devourer. It's a DC 18 constitution save um, against 8d10 necrotic damage, or half in a successful save. And the Vortex itself, strangely, it has this cool mechanic where it does an additional D10 for every living humanoid that's within its radius that has zero hit points. So if there are people making death saves, even if they've been stabilized but not healed, this thing is doing addition, <clears throat> excuse me, additional damage every, uh, with its attack. So you can imagine what this is going to do if it can wander into a group of, of low-level villagers and your fighter who's going to run up and hit it. All the villagers go down, and so it's got six or seven unconscious dying villagers, and now that 8d10 necrotic damage is 15d10. This thing is what hitting you when you're doing death saves, and that is so scary and so much fun as a dungeon master, especially if you have something, um, some basic resurrection uh, magic or maybe a, a trip down to the lower planes waiting in the wings. So the other thing that it has is called Imprisoned Soul. Uh, this one doesn't have a recharge. It just goes. If there is a living humanoid within 30 feet, so that's still within the soul round area, uh, that has zero hit points, it is teleported into the Devourer's ribcage and imprisoned there. The ribcage can only hold one creature at a time, but the first person that it drops down to zero hit points is going to then live in, or live, I guess, die technically within the ribcage of this, of this large eight-foot-tall freaking mummy-looking fiend like that i what even is this monster the person that is stuck within the devourer's ribcage also gets disadvantage on death saves it's technically still within the radius of the soul rend so if that vortex is going it's taking a whole shit ton of damage as well and auto losing death saves and if it dies while it's imprisoned the devourer gains 25 hit points immediately Ooh. it uh I got a notification here. What does this say? Dan is a butt. Hmm. Yes, he is. Um, so, uh, what was I saying? Uh, yeah, if a creature inside the soul, uh, the devourer's rib cage, uh, if it dies while imprisoned, the devourer gains 25 hit points. It immediately recharges soul rend and it gets an additional attack on its next turn. That's insanity. Additionally, if 
it vomits up the slain creature, uh, it can immediately try to imprison another one. And it does vomit it up at, on its next turn. Uh, it can also um, turn this, this creature that is vomited up into an undead. If it has, if the creature that's died had one or two hit dice, it becomes a zombie. If it has three to five hit dice, it becomes a ghoul. And if it had six or more hit dice, it becomes a white. And here's the thing. These motherfuckers are never even alone. Skeletons, zombies, ghouls, ghasts, and shadows are drawn to the devourer. So these things, can you imagine one of these things walking through a freaking cemetery? It leads hordes of undead across the land. You're not just fighting one of these things at CR 13. You're fighting tons and tons and tons of undead around it as well. The action economy is not working in your favor. And this thing has got that crazy radius attack. And it's got all of these... Uh, like It's got a pretty good claw attack on its own too. But it's got all of these things about the disadvantage on death saves. And, and if you die, then it's going to heal. And these things are madness. I'm going to throw... This says CR 13. If used properly, I'm throwing this at a CR 17 party. Absolutely. These things are going to be nasty. The last thing on the list um, before we wrap up this episode is the Rakshasa. Rakshasas are pretty famous. Uh, most of you already know who they are. And it's they're, they're last but not least in this series of Fiend episodes. Um, like I say, the CR-13, they're lawful evil. They're in the Monster Manual. These things are noble, anthropomorphic tigers and their hands have their palms on on the back of the hand and their fingers bend backwards gripping on the back of their hands as well so they've got these these weird backward i don't know i don't even know how to describe it rakshasas are um pretty powerful fiends um but they're spellcasters um who I, i i can't get past this they're immune to anything below a 7th level spell. If your party is coming up against a Rakshasa and they're going to cast something like, oh, I'm going to up my fireball to level 6 fireball and hit it, it is just going to shrug it off. This is not a um, a legendary resistance or an immunity that they can just shrug off. They can choose to shrug off one or two attacks. No, they just say no to anything below seventh level spells these things were created by devils and these devils used these bodies uh, to escape the lower planes but they've since been trapped in the bodies and now the rakshasas masquerade around the material realm as um, powerful mortals and they do this by using illusion magics and and they blend into high society. So you're not going to have a hobo that looks like, or that's secretly a Rakshasa. You're going to have the deputy mayor, right? Or a rich, a rich uh, member of the court, perhaps. Here's the fun thing about them, though, is they secretly feast on mortal flesh, which is just a lot of fun as well. We don't have things that are just like a high intelligence, cannibalistic level creatures there's not a whole lot there's the the nalfeshni is like that i'm pretty sure that rakshasa would absolutely freaking hate the mockery of fine dining that a nalfeshni would would have um in their private larder so um a rakshasa will rematerialize in the nine hells uh if it dies just like any other devil would but because of its dark rituals that transformed it into these um, anthropomorphic tiger fiends. This process isn't immediate. It takes months and it's incredibly painful. But they do come back with all their memories and they have gone through this torture now. They've been murdered and then tortured and now they're back and they often will just swear vengeance and hunt down those responsible. So if you kill one of these things at CR 12 or 13, I would be really, really scared of any noble that pops up when you're about CR 18 or 19 because they're plotting against you. So 
that's the end of these uh, these fiends. Actually, it's the end of all the fiends. We've hit literally every one of them between all of these four episodes. Uh, the only thing that I didn't cover was the Hellfire engine because it's technically a construct. Uh, but everything else, and I guess we didn't cover any uh, arch devils or demon lords, or even the general of Gehana. Uh, so we have more, um, we have more episodes on fiends in the future. But check out tomorrow's episode. It's going to be on the blood war specifically, and how these fiends interact, and how we would use the blood war in uh, a campaign as a major feature of a campaign. So I hope that this has been beneficial for everyone except Dan and Terry. I freaking broke Terry's coffee table and I stole all of Dan's beer. Um, Terry's now booby-trapping his front door. And uh, and Dan is, I guess, doing laps of his house and locking the windows at night. I hope they're paranoia. Like, this is, this is just me being neutral evil people. This isn't chaotic. I don't care what happens. It's not about following the rules or not following the rules. I just want them to fight. That's it. May, oh, shit. Maybe that's where Terry is right now. Oh, shit. Maybe that's where Terry is right now. Uh, I should probably go make sure he's not murdering Dan. Um, so, uh, we'll check in tomorrow. Thanks very much for listening to these. If you like these little solo episodes, let us know. Um, they tend to be kind of info dumps and not so much fun and personality. Uh, um, and if you don't like them, let me know as well. Uh, I just won't care. So anyway, this has been Adam. Uh, this has been another special for It's a Mimic. And I hope that everyone gets something out of these and that we've inspired your fiendish campaigns at least a little bit. Uh, if you are players and not DMs that have been listening to this and thinking, wow, these are horrible things and how do we ever fight them? Let me just say from the bottom of my heart, screw you, buddy. The fiends are coming for you. Mm-hmm.